Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Last night was a beautiful night here oh. on the lake. We uh, we sat out on our on our balcony, had a couple of refreshing beverages, listened to the loons, had a nice talk. It was it was a wonderful time. It was a really good time. I think we're trying to take advantage of as much of this environment as we can before we go and uh, so I think we're both like hyper aware of how nice it was Um, and then you started quoting some classic literature it was really interesting (laughs) (laughs) well if by classic literature you mean uh, the lyrics to fastball song the way yeah yeah I was doing that right (laughs) we're talking about how sometimes like when you're in a very emotional point in your life. It's almost as though every song lyric is about you or to you. Yeah, and we're getting ready to move, so I'm I'm at the grocery store picking some things up, and, and The Way by Fastball comes on, and it's, they made up their minds, and they started packing, and I burst into tears right there in the cereal aisle. And it's funny. I realize that pop songs affect me the same way that Perhaps classic literature and poetry affect uh, those who are more educated. I guess the thing is, I just relate more... uh, To fastball than to Chaucer. Right. Yes. That was my point. Well, thanks for getting my Raisin Nut brand. (laughs) Well, you're welcome. (laughs) Now I want to ask you a question. Yeah? And I'm going to ask you via a piece of art that somebody sent (laughs) for me. I'm so excited because I have asked for a what you got for me anthem for when it's your story time, because you've got your what you got for me song. And I feel like I should have a what you got for me song also. And I am loving some of the responses that we're getting. Cat has never been happier in her life. I love it so much. 
Who sent that to us? Thank you so much to Luke. Luke. That is incredible. That's incredible, Luke. I am thrilled. <laughs> wow. It's like you know me. Anyway. Um, yeah. <clears throat> what have I got for you? Yeah. Um, here's a question. Can a painting be haunted? Many think the answer is yes. Yeah. Many haunted painting experts say yes. yes. Haunted painting enthusiasts. <laughs> Uh, in the middle of the night, in the early eight, uh, 1980s, in uh, South Yorkshire, in England, a beautiful country home caught on fire, and it burned to the ground. The living room was nothing but charred wood and ashes. The house was owned by Ron and May Hall, and they lost everything in the fire, Aww. except for a painting that they had hanging on the wall of the living room. It was the painting of a crying young boy. For some reason, everything in the house was destroyed except this one painting of a crying boy. Is it a valuable painting? No, it's it's not a valuable painting. It uh, it was a mass mass produced painting, in fact. Why are we mass producing paintings of crying children? Well, when you think about some of the mass produced pictures, not just paintings, but photos that you find in frames at stores, when you buy a, a frame at a store, they'll put a photo mm -hmm. in there. Sure. Yeah. They're not always the most tasteful. <laughs> they're, they're usually a little tacky. Look at this weeping kid. <laughs> yeah. And since these paintings were created en masse, if you will, uh, this was not the first time that the picture of a crying boy was found as the only artifact to survive in a house fire. In oh. fact, over the years, there have been dozens and dozens of these cases. So what's the history of this crying boy painting and the subsequent fires? Yes, please. The signature on the painting is of a guy named Giovanni Bregolin. And uh, these paintings became incredibly popular in the 50s through the 70s, because they had been cheaply reproduced and sold through major department stores during those years. Okay. For some reason, at the time, they were extremely popular with young couples. We just, we just can't get enough of our new home with our beautiful white picket fence and our gallery of crying children. <laughs> we have actual crying children, but let's have some paintings depicting other crying children as well. Couples perhaps would furnish their first home, you know, when they needed some art and these didn't cost a lot of money. So crying boy paintings became a bit of a craze uh, from the 50s through the 70s. I just really want to capture the moment that we tell little Timmy that Meemaw's dead. Literally thousands and thousands and thousands of these paintings were sold over the years. So who was Giovanni Bragolin? Why did it appear that his paintings were cursed? So the legend of the crying boy painting curse seems to have started with the, uh, the son tabloid newspaper in the uk okay in 1985 on september 4th they published an article with the headline quote blazing curse of the crying boy picture and the story talked about how this painting seemed to bring bad luck to many who bought it um, and most commonly in the form of a house fire uh, according to the article local fire station officer said these paintings seem to turn up mysteriously unscathed in fires all across the UK. 
Each fire seemed to have been started spontaneously. He said uh, he would personally never own one of these paintings because he's seen he has seen too much. <laughs> he said he told a couple about it and uh, they laughed it off. They didn't heed his warning. And uh, soon after that, uh, their house burned down. So they they didn't buy that the the paintings were haunted. No, yeah, sure. for some reason. It's weird. So the uh, Sun newspaper decided to dig into the history a little bit of Giovanni Bragolin. Uh, they could find no information about this guy. He didn't seem to exist other than his signature painted on these reprints Ooh. of. And so that that seemed. A little weird and he apparently was very obscure and of course this added if you'll pardon the expression fuel to the fire of, <laughs> of the curse of this painting it seems as though it wasn't just one child he painted but he actually painted hundreds of children crying many of them street urchins so weird <laughs> finally in 2000 uh the book Haunted uh, Liverpool claimed that in 1995, a well-respected school teacher named George Mallory discovered that the painter was actually a guy named Franchot Saville. And he put the pieces together between uh, this book and the Sun newspapers, and a, and a picture begins to emerge. One of the street urchins he painted was a little boy named Don Benillo. Okay. Or Benillo. The story is that Don... When, when he was very young, accidentally it caused a house fire at the home he lived in with his parents in Spain, and that house fire killed his parents. Oh, jeez. It said that wherever he went growing up, fires would follow him, and, and that prompted a nickname for him. The kids called him Diablo. Oh. You know, I had a, a Diablo cocktail the other day, and it was delicious. It had a little ginger in it, mm -hmm. so it... Back of the mouth, Back of the kind, mouth. Of, yeah. kind of thing. It's yeah. good. Uh -huh. Sorry, I was just thinking about that. It was good. So the story goes that he was adopted against the will of a priest uh, that he had been placed in custody of and uh, that he had been abused by the artist. Oh, no. And in the 1970s, Don had grown up. He was in a car accident and was burned alive in the car accident. Okay. Journalist Dr. David Clark did some research on the crying boy legend for uh, 14 times, the publication 14 times. Giovanni Bragolin and Seville seem to have been several pseudonyms for the Spanish painter Bruno Amadio. So it was a pseudonym and not just that this painter existed only in the realm of yeah. spiritual painting murder. Right. Yeah. Spiritual painting murder apparently wasn't uh, wasn't the cause. Um, and it's likely that he painted 20 to 30 different crying boys after a training in Venice shortly after World War II. And prints of these paintings were sold in department stores uh, throughout the 70s. He actually painted hundreds, but there were 20 to 30 different ones that were reproduced and sold in department stores. Okay. There was also another artist. Her name was Anna Zinquazin. And uh, she did similar series of crying children paintings as well. And those were considered cursed, just like the originals. So in the book, The Martians Have Landed by Robert Bartholomew and Benjamin Redford, they said that uh, many people wrote to the newspaper in response of this original article in, uh, in The Sun in 1985 and to other newspapers as well. 
One woman said she wouldn't she couldn't think of a reason why such a lovely picture could suddenly be thought of as jinked. Yet she said she was going to throw it away for safety's sake. <laughs> I would. A post on the website of the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry said that because of the alleged abuse by the painter that these paintings of the young boys could be cursed and that the fires are the child's way of getting revenge. Aha. Uh-huh. Comedian and writer Stephen Punt has a radio show on the BBC, and uh, he was able to track down some of the homes that were involved in this story. And he spoke to a woman, her name was, let me see here, Jane McCutcheon, and she had hung the print in her living room back in the 1980s. She said uh, she was working in her kitchen one day when she heard a noise, and turning around, she saw Her drapes, blinds, and curtains were all ablaze. Her family escaped unscathed, but the home was a complete loss, except for a single painting hung in the living room of the crying boy. Oh, my goodness. She said, quote, you can still you could still see the little boy's face in the painting. She also said that she overheard a firefighter who had come to respond to the blaze say, quote, oh, no, not another. She then said she went on to have a series of coincidences and bad luck until she finally got rid of the painting. The the painting having been charred in a fire wasn't enough for her? No, apparently not. Okay. She's, she, like, maybe it was the only thing left of her possessions and she wanted to keep it. I don't know. Yes. As for the other fires, most of them had normal causes, like, you know, a stove fire. Not cursed painting. Or or a lit cigarette. Well, the idea is that the curse could cause these things to happen. It wouldn't just be the painting would burst into flames and burn everything down. Sure. But most of the legend seemed to center around the fact that the fires consumed everything except the painting. So Stephen Punt bought his own version of the painting. Brave soul. Yes. And for some reason, the delivery of the painting uh, was delayed many, many times for ridiculous reasons. And this started to make him a little bit nervous. Were any of the reasons car fires? No, I don't know for sure. He said that once he was in possession of the painting, he started feeling really nervous about the curse. But he decided to test its fire resistance by actually setting it on fire. Oh. And that test is actually available. You can watch that on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, he sets the, the painting against a brick wall, and then he has like some kindling under the right front side of it. Okay. And he lights it, and the kindling bursts into flame. But then it just kind of fizzles out. Is there some sort of thing in the painting, like a type of paint or finish or framing that's flame retardant? He said, that's that's an excellent question. He said that uh, the painting was relatively unscathed. There was a a small black hole near where the fire was uh, and the string burned on the back of it, but nothing else. And the damage stopped pretty quickly. The Sun newspaper published another article, quote, crying boy curse strikes again, and then said that it uh, it might be a good idea for people to get rid of uh, of all of their crying boy paintings. So they urged their readers to send in all of their paintings and thousands of them showed up. Wow. Sackfuls of them. Um, on Halloween, 
night in 1985, they piled them all up by the Thames River and set them on fire. Oh <laughs> <laughs> <was> so weird. <laughs> like adult humans yep. are doing this. I love it. The bonfire blazed for nearly an hour near the river. Um, hopefully, they, they were hoping the curse would go up in smoke. Mm-hmm. Those gathered around were hoping that. One onlooker said, quote, I think there will be many people who can breathe a little easier now. Well, not after a roaring <laughs> painting fire on the side of the river. Maybe if they were upwind. So what's behind this unusual curse? Could it actually be that these children were abused? And because of this, these paintings are cursed. Maybe. But it's believed that based on the experiments by Stephen Punt, that this is probably a more likely scenario. Chances are that these prints were made uh, and coated with a fire retardant substance, like you said. We don't know this for sure, but it's probably, it's quite likely. It was also printed on compressed board, which makes it much harder to burn. Mm. So a fire would break out, and the first thing that would burn would be the string holding it on the wall. It would fall down and more often than not, face down. This, in fact, was uh, the case in many of the fires. They would find the the painting face down uh, on the floor. And as we know, fire moves up. Mm -hmm. And so it would probably be somewhat protected being face down. And the the combination of a fire retardant and the fact that it was face down would explain a lot. It doesn't completely explain the fires. Um, certainly not the ones where the picture was still hanging on the wall, right? but it does go a long way to offering a, a solution. Now, this story was, like I said, the, the mid-80s, so it was pre-internet, okay. but it did survive into the internet age. It even sparked fan clubs. Uh, most of these have been dissolved by now, uh, but there is evidence of one in existence as recently as 2002. Um, it was There was a blog that discussed the Crying Boy paintings, and uh, also the sales of the paintings. It tracked the sales of the paintings. And also reports of a Holland-based club of enthusiasts. You know, if the editor of The Sun was really clever, he would have saved out a few of those paintings. And then, you know, the price, obviously, for them would go through the roof because yeah, they'd burned all the <laughs> yeah, rest. Yeah. That's pretty smart. According to Gail Nina Anderson, in a paper that she wrote about folklore, the crying boy legend grew as quickly as it did because the paintings were cheap and easy to find and everybody could participate in it. Mm -hmm. The legend grew as it did. It became so widespread that it included all versions of similar paintings by various artists, including the cursed paintings of crying girls. Uh, Regardless of the explanation... It really must have been creepy for these firefighters to go to these houses that time and time again burned to the ground. And the only thing left was this creepy, crying street urchin staring them in the face. (laughs) What if, what if, yeah, right. What if the boys in the paintings weren't crying before the fire? Ooh, scary. (laughs) I want to thank Kevin Mathis. He sent me an email suggesting that uh, that we do this topic. I got most of my material from Atlas Obscura. Um, this is a fascinating story. And even though, you know, probably not cursed, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to see how the uh, the movement built. 
Yeah. And uh, how quickly people jumped on that bandwagon. I love the idea that the city had a fire. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to see a picture of the... Oh, yes, please. It's pretty creepy. We'll post this online. Oh, God, why? (laughs) Yeah, I know it was my question. (laughs) This one's available. Uh, It's available for sale in uh, Scotland. I'm sure you can find them. Let me let me take a let me take a quick look at eBay. Yes, please do. I've been aching to have a image of a bereft toddler in our home. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, there's plenty of them. Oh god. Um, oh, yeah, and they range in price from a hundred dollars to eighteen hundred dollars. Oh, here's one for thirty, but it looks like it's just somebody's kid did it. <laughs> I wonder if there are neighborhoods that have like. Um, neighborhood association laws against having those. Like you can't have a German Shepherd or a Cane Corso. Or a pickup truck. Or a crying child painting. And now, that thing in the middle. Charles Whitman was a perfectly normal man until he woke up on July 31st, 1966. He discovered he had an uncontrollable urge to kill. Soon after, he killed 14 people, including his wife and mother. In his autopsy, it was revealed that a brain tumor was pushing on his amygdala, and that caused him to have murderous thoughts. It might be the only record of a brain tumor causing a person to become a serial killer. The curator was at a party a few weeks back where he learned that a woman in the neighborhood subscribes to this podcast, but had no recollection of hearing the curator. Weird about her house fire that night, don't you think? This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got a message from Rose, and I really wanted to share this because I think it's funny. Uh, they wrote, hi, firstly, congratulations on both of you being able to do the podcast full time. Well, thank yeah. you very much. We're very, very excited about yes, it. Yes, we are. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Rose writes, I was cleaning out my fridge when you said you were both going to be working on the podcast full time, and I started crying. My family was looking at me so funny, so I blamed all the stinky old food. <laughs> First of all, I am blown away that you're you're invested in our lives in that way and that you care. And I just I cannot thank you all like so much. We've gotten so many messages and yeah. they're just an outpouring of support. And it's just like it's so nice, and I don't even know what to do with it all, like, yeah, other than, know. you know, tell you to shut up and <laughs> cry quietly in my car. Right, yeah, and then blame it on bad food. <laughs> um, no, it's true, and, and we really... We've said this a million times, how we think of you guys as family, and uh, this is a great example of, of that being more true than ever. Anyway... 
Bye. <laughs> we also got a message on Facebook. A uh, guy said that if we did not play the What You Got For Me anthem, uh, he shan't listen anymore. Yeah. And because he used the word shan't. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? I want to tell you uh, about... Why are you smiling at me like that? I don't know. You're just so animated. I, <laughs> I'm i really excited to hear what this is about. <laughs> Yain Baranbui and Tamai Tontaki are from the island nation of Kiribati. Kiribati is an independent island nation on in the central Pacific Ocean. It's a string of atolls formerly known as the Gilbert Islands. Kiribati is one of the least developed countries in the world, and its major production and export are dried coconut kernels and fish. So many of the islanders make their living by fishing, and that's what Baranabui and Tontaki were doing. Um, I'm going to call them by their first names, Yain and Tamei, Okay. from now on, and it's Oh, I'm sorry. I care very much about you both. So Yain and Tamei in 2011 uh, went out into the the water uh, in a boat. And it's a little bit confusing depending on which source you're getting information from why they went out. Did they go out to go fishing or did they go to get gas? Either way, um, they had just finished what they were doing, uh, either some nighttime fishing or getting gas, and they were embarking on their 50-kilometer journey home. So they're out to sea, they're on their way home, and their GPS failed. Oh, no. So, uh, you know, I mean, the South Pacific, right? You uh, go to Google Maps, you pull that up, and it's, it's just blue. It's big and <laughs> blue. <laughs> it's just blue. And uh, so with their GPS out of batteries, they drifted for days. Oh my God. And days turned into weeks. The U.S. Coast Guard mounted an aerial search for them. And at one point, both of them heard a plane, but they couldn't see one. Oh, man. And, That's got to be just oh, the worst. Oh, I can't even imagine. They survived on what little fish they were able to catch. Uh, but sometimes they would go three or four days without food. And they're was also the problem that there wasn't a lot of rain. So fresh water was scarce, and the two eventually started drinking seawater. Nope. Which is not great. So they were very worried because they're from this island nation, and they know that this kind of thing isn't rare. Um, as I said, a huge number of the population makes their living catching fish. So they're out on the sea. And again, in this region, it is expansive. There is no shortage of opportunity for getting lost, for getting caught up in storms, for whatever. So they, the people just, it happens all the time. They just get lost. And when you consider that the South Pacific is approximately 63 million square miles and there are only 40 inhabited islands in that. Holy shit. And most of them are just tiny little Yeah, like strings. coral reefs. Right. Yeah, you know, that I never, while well, you put it in that kind of a perspective and it, it kind of creeps me out. 
Yeah, yeah, it's creepy. It's very creepy. It gives me that cruise ship woohoo feeling in my gut. Yeah, the, the, there's a mile of water under you. Ooh. Oh, let's go back to the buffet. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's concerning enough, but it's especially concerning for these two because they had an uncle who got lost at sea, Uncle Barrio. He had cast off from their island home in the 1950s or maybe early 1960s and had never returned. And yeah. so their families, you know, had talked about Uncle Barrio never returning from a fishing trip. So it's very scary for these two men. So after 33 days adrift, 33 days, wow. their boat washed ashore on an isolated Marshall Island called Namdrick. It's got a population of about 600 people. Of course, these two men are exhausted, just thrilled to be on land, but nobody spoke their language. Mm. So they're, they're talking to people. Obviously, they know that these guys are in distress, but they don't know exactly what's going on. And one of them said, you know what, I think he didn't. They didn't say that in English, but um, they kind of recognized the language. So they went and they found a single person on this island of 600 who did speak their language. No kidding. Yes. So they found the, the person uh, who spoke the language. And keep in mind that at this point, they're almost 400 miles from their own island. Wow. They had drifted so far to this island of essentially foreigners and there's a single person on this island that speaks their language how incredible so they were astonished and as they are talking to her they discover that they share a name Uh oh this person that they were speaking to no was a descendant of uncle barrio oh my god i just got chills uncle barrio oh, look, at, look at the hair on my <laughs> arm standing right up Wow. Uncle Barrio had, in the very same way, drifted away from his home na- his home island to this rando island <laughs> in the middle of the South Pacific. And, of course, in the 50s slash 60s, he was not able to contact home and tell anyone that he was okay. So, I mean, eventually, he settled down. <laughs> he got married. He had kids. He passed the language on. He did. Wow. So that's who Yain and Tamai were speaking to, was their relative, (laughs) a descendant of Uncle Barrio, who had also landed on this island. Now, of course, Uncle Barrio had since died, but his story raises hope about others and there have been many who have disappeared into the Pacific. Like maybe there are more situations like this where family members just ended up somewhere else, not necessarily lost forever. So these two men are like blown away. This is an incredible situation, obviously. <laughs> they hitched a ride from their outlying island chain at Uh, on a cargo boat, and then they had to wait for days for a broken plane to be fixed so they could be returned to Kiribati (laughs) because this is such a remote place. Holy crap. Yeah. I cannot believe that there's not been a movie made about this. This is this would be a great movie. Right? I love this story and it's I know there's not a lot to it and we don't have a, a ton more uh details about it, but it's just such an incredible story, one of survival 
33 days floating in the middle of the ocean. I mean, it's terrifying. And then this incredible coincidence with this sole surviving descendant who speaks their language. I mean, I just, oh, gives me all the feels. So they, they get back to their home island, mm. and I can only imagine what the reaction was. First of all, they survived. right. Probably by then they've been written off as lost at sea. Yep. But then they say, hey, you know what? So did I. We not only did we survive, Uncle Barrio made it too. Yeah. What a message of hope. That's incredible. I love it. I got most of my information from the India Times from ABC.au, Independent and Daily Mail. Last night we were talking a little bit about uh, the New York City live show. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be on the 29th of October, which is Halloween weekend. And I think we, correct me if I'm wrong, because, well, we had several cocktails. I think that we... uh, we have decided that we're going to stay in New York for the weekend. Yeah, we're going to stay in town for a few days. We're going to be there dur- during Halloween. And so if you guys are from that area and you have any suggestions of really cool Halloween stuff to do, mm-hmm. uh, send us an email, curator at the box of oddities.com. Or delicious food we should be eating. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we need your help planning trips, as always. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And if you want to go to the show... Uh, We would love to have you there. You can get your tickets. They're on sale now. Theboxofoddities.com. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.